Hey, I'm Dave Rubin and this is The Rubin Report. If you're new here, click the subscribe button and make sure that the bell is solid to get all notifications. And more importantly, joining me today is the founder and president of Turning Point USA, the largest conservative college student organization in the United States of America, as well as the host of the Charlie Kirk podcast. Charlie Kirk, welcome back to The Rubin Report. Thanks, Dave. Glad to be here. That was the longest intro I've ever given. Well. Thank you for all, enduring that. All in one breath. We're also basically dressed exactly the same here. Yes. We have some agreements, but we also have some disagreements. So this is going to be an odd mirror. I think we've actually started to agree on almost the big, every big thing over the last couple of years. Well, a lot of the things, actually. So you were on the show, what, it's about two years already. It's like January of 18? January of 18. So that's like over a year and a half yeah. ago, basically. And uh, I've gotten to know you quite well in, in the last year and a half. We've, we've toured together, uh, usually with Candace Owens, obviously. And uh, I, I want to cover all new stuff here, but I do want to quickly just talk about Turning Point briefly, sure. because when we do these events together, um, and I'm sure we've got some coming up in the fall, you always make a point of saying to the audience, A, if you've got questions and you disagree with us, come up first. So we always take questions from people that disagree with us first, and we treat them as respectfully as humanly possible, or at least as respectfully as they treat us. Um, but also, me and you have some disagreements, and we go up there and we talk them out. So how is it that so many people on Twitter think you're a fascist? What, 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 a, what a strange concept. <laughs> how was that for a segue? You see how I did that? Very good. It was right into it. Yeah. What a strange concept to hear the other side, to give people a platform that you totally and might fundamentally disagree with, then have a conversation about it, see where you might be able to build consensus, find the disagreements, and then find why you disagree, which is super important. So you do, do you disagree because you have different data inputs, or do you disagree because you have different philosophical inputs? Two totally different things. Yeah. So, for example, someone might say, well, I want universal health care because it works so well all across the world. Well, okay, let's talk about that, and then you can maybe deconstruct some of the failures of socialized medicine. Or, I want universal health care because I believe health care is a right. That's different. Th right, those are very different Two totally things. different, and then you all of a sudden have a conversation. And then what happens after that conversation? You've seen it, Dave. I mean, you spoke with us at University of Connecticut. You spoke with us at UC Berkeley. Uh, you subbed in for us up in the Northeast. I think it was New Hampshire, right? Yes, yes. You and Candace didn't show for that one. That was That's correct. the one that I dealt with those lunatics yeah. myself. Thank you again for and, that. Yeah, of course. And you, you got, it went viral. And you <laughs> it did, did go you, viral. You did brilliantly. Yeah, thank and, you. And Dave, you'll, I think, reinforce this. Every time we get a chance to go to these campuses and have these conversations, there seems as if, at least with the individual student and the people in the room, there's a level of respect for at least our, our worldview and our position mm -hmm. from even those that disagree with us. And we like to say that it's not that these students are opposed to our ideas, that they're not exposing them at all in the first place. And just being able to have this sort of marketplace of ideas, and you and I will disagree on some things yeah. sometimes, which is amazing. I mean, who wants to go listen to a bunch of people say, I agree, me too, I agree. You don't want that. Yeah. That's, by the way, that's we're, called college. Right, we're, that is called college, sadly. And we're going to get into that because you and I are having a major mm -hmm. issue right now with the, with the big tech censorship stuff, which is it's a personal issue for both of us as podcasters sure. and YouTubers and the rest of it. But it's also a, a really serious uh, philosophic issue. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I always find most interesting at the events that we do is a lot of times there'll be like a crew in the back of the room that clearly is not there because they mm -hmm. like us. But you know, sometimes they'll sit there respectfully, but they'll kind of have a, a scowl on their face or they'll be giggling or whispering but to somebody. Really sure how to make of it. But, but then by the end, when you're expecting that, when you say to them, if you disagree with us, come up first, a lot of them just kind of leave because I think something does actually happen over the course of the hour, hour and a half when they go, Whoa, these people that I'm heard of, yes. heard or told are alt-right or fascist or something, they're not all that bad. And well, then suddenly they feel sort of foolish. Support for the Rubin Report comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home is so much more than a house, it's your own little slice of heaven. That's why when you find the perfect place for you and your family, getting a mortgage shouldn't get in the way. Imagine how it feels to have an award-winning team by your side through every step of the mortgage process. It's awesome, and it's exactly what you get with Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Their team of mortgage experts is obsessed with finding a better way, which means that their number one goal is to make the home buying process smoother for you. 
Quicken Loans has helped millions of Americans achieve their dream of home ownership, and when you are ready to purchase the home of your dreams, they can help you too. Their team cares about getting you home. That's why J.D. Power is ranked Quicken Loans highest in customer satisfaction for primary mortgage origination nine years in a row and highest in mortgage servicing five years in a row. When you work with them, you get more than just a loan because Rocket Mortgage is more than just a lender. Get started online at rocketmortgage.com slash Ruben, equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. For J.D. Power award information, visit jdpower.com. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Push button, get mortgage. And now back to the show. Well, and what I love is that we're sitting on stage. We have you, we have the great Candace Owens, and they're here calling us racist. They're calling us bigoted. They're calling us backward thinking. Hey, homophobe, homophobe. Right, yeah, homophobic, right, yeah, of course, homophobic, give me something here. right? All these sorts of things. Yeah. And all of a sudden they listen to this message of Western classical liberal ideas of listening to the other side and opening up markets and the individual matters the most. We live in a great country. And Dave, I have to say, I am a robber baron of one of the things that you say. I've stolen it probably 30 times. So as long welcome. as you credit me now. About cool. more than 50%. Um, <laughs> I will cre- I'll credit it right now. I credit you sometimes, but I'll credit you right now where you ask the audience. You say, who here has it worse than your grandparents? And no hand, I've never seen a hand go up. Yeah. And isn't that a great, just, just kind of visual representation of how beautiful this country is. You know, there's one time just in the last few months, so I've asked that question hundreds of times at this point, and literally nobody. Then about a month ago, I was at Santa Clara, and I asked the question, it's and like somebody, some, wait, it's even better, the guy raises his hand, he says that he's a Chinese immigrant to the US, and he moved here you know, five or 10 years ago, and that um, he has it worse than his grandparents because the, the communists took all of his grandparents' stuff. And I thought, wow, that's as good as it gets. Well, that, that's it. That I mean, is as good as sure. it gets. But yeah. that, that sort of argument is not made ever on college campuses through the traditional institutional professor and academic elites. Instead, the philosophical position that is predominantly put towards students is that America is a mistake the ideas that you grew up with are flawed, but we have all the answers. We and our couple thousand professors in the academy, we're the smart ones. We're the philosopher kings that Plato used to talk about. Give us the power and give us the trust to how to run society and things will get better. And they focus on the inequality. They focus on the structural deficits. And of course, there will always be structural deficits. I mean, if a society end up, ends up eradicating them, I don't think that's going to happen in our lifetime. There will always be outliers. There's always going to be people. But generally, things are Well, you're going to have to kill a lot of people to do well, that, right. too, Look right? Look at the Soviets. I mean, yeah. like, we only have to kill 60 million people to try to you know, get to agreement. Well, that's, that's hard to swallow. Um, and it didn't even work after that. You know, and look at uh, communist China under, under Mao. Anyway, so the, the, the academy is, is rooted in not teaching the other, other ideas, but teaching their ideas, the monolithic ideas. And that's why what we're doing, and we love bringing you to campus, what we're doing at Turning Point USA is having so much resonance. I mean, we have grown so substantially since the last time you and I sat down. Our, you see our conferences, thousands yeah, and thousands of students, they're growing you know, exponentially, and um, what, we, we was it your, to slow down. Was it your idea to just kind of also make them more fun? Because I speak at all sorts of stuff, and there's definitely a difference between going to a Turning Point event in the way the crowd, it feels a little bit, almost like you're at a pro wrestling match, and I, I mean that in the most, I mean that in the fun way, because even whatever they're chanting, and sometimes they're chanting MAGA or whatever it is, it's like they're not doing it out of racism, they're doing it out of like, let's have some fun yes. with some of this, and I don't even think all of them are, are pure MAGA people or anything, it's just like, oh, let's not make politics just endlessly painful and boring If and I have stiff. to hear one more lecture from someone like, Nixon shouldn't have been impeached. Like, yeah. okay, I got it, yeah. you know? Yeah. And that, that's fine, you can listen to those scholars, but the traditional conservative conference is just, here's a bunch of white papers, here's how correct we are, let's look at these charts, and then you say, okay, I agree. But what's happening is that we're also in a culture war, and you go to these Turning Point USA events, it's the music, it's the bright lights, it's the t-shirt cannons, and all of a sudden, you're having fun. Yeah. And who's the, the left is anti-fun. I mean, they're anti-comedic expression, they're anti-creativity. I mean, everything is you're going to offend somebody. I mean, I'm surprised, I really am surprised. We have these t-shirt cannons. 
that they have not said that we are making fun of, you know, some sort of victims of some sort of shooting because we have yeah. you know, T-shirt cannons. Well, I'm you, just, you just handed it to them. Well, there we go. So they'll, they'll come after that with us later. But, you know, I'm joking, of course, but the point is that we try to make it high energy, and we do, and because of that, our conferences and our events, you know, grow substantially. So what did the conservatives do wrong? If these classical liberal to conservative ideas are the right ones, and I think I'm pretty much with you on that mm -hmm. at this point, where did the conservatives screw up that they lost the academy, they lost the media, they lost academia, they lost everything that led us to a, an entirely brainwashed generation of millennials, yeah. and, then, and then a group of, say, lefties that are older than them that just acquiesce to it sure. out of sheer fear? So we did two things majorly wrong. One on policy philosophy, which I think you'll find interesting, and then one just kind of structurally on like an infrastructure side of what we've done wrong. First of which, I think that we lost a lot of young people and a lot of people that consider themselves liberals to this day, just over multi-decades and multi-generations of identifying themselves as that, based on doing what we now accuse the left of doing, which is for many years, Republicans in the 70s and 80s, and I'm an evangelical Christian, I'm a Bible-believing evangelical Christian, and so I have, um, I think, some standing to say this. The, the, the right in America was telling people how to live their life. Mm -hmm. Not everyone, but boy, did it sure sound like that. Was that this is the correct way, this is the only way, and then you're mixing, it's really close to mixing deeply held religious beliefs and government policy. Do, do you think they meant it in that that's truly what they wanted, say the evangelicals or the religious right, or that it was purely a political ploy? Because a lot of people look back to George W. Bush's re-election when they made say. gay marriage like this wedge issue, which I don't think George W. Bush specifically yeah. cared about gay marriage, but in that way it was a, a political tool, not necessarily an ideological tool. It's, it's tough to say. I, I, mean, I, will, I will speak to the fact that I think conservatives today on the right, and you'll agree with this, we have the moral high ground because the ethos of the modern new conservative movement is don't tell me how to live my life, I won't tell you how to live your life, don't take my stuff, I'm not going to take your stuff. That's really the ethos of why we have the moral high ground. That's that libertarian side I keep telling you guys about. Just keep sticking well, look, with that and I, you're good. I, I agree and there's some things that I think yeah, we we'll get there, become we'll get more there. populist on, but that's okay. Um, with that being said, so where did we go wrong? is we, become, we became the angry librarian in the room in the 70s and 80s. Don't have fun. Stop doing this. And again, as an evangelical Christian that believes these, I do believe all, all these ideas, that doesn't mean you have to put them forth in government policy. M meaning that you personally of wouldn't, course, wouldn't personally. want to partake in this, whether it's uh, sex or drugs. Yes, or and that's fine. Like For, for example, we've, we've talked, I think, privately about you know, drugs. I think you should be able to put what you want in your body. I've never done drugs. I don't plan on doing drugs. But why is it my problem that you're doing that, right? So that's a personal versus policy versus kind of public policy. So, so when you talk to the more old school conservatives on that, because so let's just forget all the all the other drugs sure. for a second, because I think there's a secondary thing when you talk about the highly addictive ones. But I let's just that, talk about marijuana. Yeah, that's a little for different second. of an argument. Let's, yeah. let's talk about marijuana. Right. So on marijuana, when you talk to the more old school mm -hmm. conservatives. I simply don't understand the position because I get it. You guys want to have a certain moral center that you don't want to deviate mm -hmm. against. I understand that. But that center then, I mean, this is what you're getting to, it then deviates from your state's rights stuff, your limited government stuff. And it's like those things are in constant conflict. And, it's, sure. and, and why leave it to Chuck Schumer to say that marijuana should be a, a state's rights issue? Like well, when I heard him say that, I was like, oh, yeah, like why, you why, morons. Why, yeah, why give him that yeah. political win? Yeah. And so here's my only contribution, I think, to the whole marijuana debate where I come from. People should be able to do what they want with their body. But when it starts to get into the glorification of the substance, that's where I'm going to push back. And, and that's where you and I can have an interesting discussion. Yeah. So will it make society a better place over the next 20, 30 years if more people are doing marijuana? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I mean, if sure. you're doing it instead of pharmaceuticals, maybe. But if you have a bunch of 14-year-olds that are you know, consuming edibles, I don't know if that's a great thing. Yeah. Right? However, I, that doesn't mean that it should be illegal. Yeah. And that, that's a really important thing. And that's where principles come in is you can disagree with something fundamentally and still think that other people should be able to do it. That takes tolerance, that takes maturity, and that takes us, that, that's what a civil society is all about. So are you pleased then watching the way conservatives have moved? Because when people say to me, oh Dave, you always go to these conservative things and you know they secretly hate gay people and that's blah, the, blah, blah, the, that's, and the, that's the 
most false, ridiculous thing I could possibly think. Uh, here. It's yeah. totally Well, untrue. I never see it. I mean I, I mean, I always say this. Like, I can't find them. Like, you can keep telling I, me I that. I haven't found them. Yeah. I haven't. Yeah. I mean, and Dave, let's, let's, let's talk about this for a, a minute. You and I spoke at Louisiana State University yeah. in the Deep South, in the Bible Belt. And you got a standing I, I think I got more applause than you, for the record. I'm just totally. saying. Totally. And then we also had Candace Owens, who got standing up. Yeah. I thought this place is supposed to be backwards thinking and bigoted. And, I mean, I guarantee you, we could, we could go to University of Alabama. We could go to the Lincoln-Reagan Day dinner in Alabama, and you would get that same sort of response. And so I haven't... I'm speaking at Liberty University in October. And I mean, Jerry Fall was an amazing guy, and they're going to welcome you with open arms, and you'll get a standing ovation from them. Now, they have a biblical view of marriage, of which I have... But your biblical view of marriage does not have to be what your public policy prescription for marriage is. Those are two totally different things. So then where, so just let's go back to the question yeah. then. Then where did the conservatives really get tripped up on this? So, so I'm glad to see it moving. I'm, I'm yeah. with you. It's moving. I get it. But where did they get screwed up? Yeah, and and I, how do you fix the remaining part of that? So it's where the, the, the evangelical right began to take these deeply held religious beliefs and see how popular they were in certain parts of the country and then say, well, let's just make it into then our public policy platform. And that's not what the left is doing to us. They're now taking secular humanist, very, very kind of, I would say, morally transient positions. Now they're putting it in their public policy positions. Mm. They're doing, they're, and we're accusing them of it, right? Now we're saying, wait, you can't tell me how to, you can't tell me what bath, I can't, I have to use this bathroom or this, or you can't tell me how to live my life. And I'm, wait, wait a second. A lot of Repub people on the right made a mistake of doing this back in the 70s and 80s. Do you get a lot of Republicans pissed at you when you acknowledge this? Because no. this, this is a pretty big mea culpa, I think, for an evangelical I, Christian and someone that's leading young we conservatives. Should be, we shouldn't be afraid to admit mistakes. Yeah. I mean, if we think that we've done, we've done brilliantly as a country throughout the last 30 years on every issue, I mean, come on, that's a foolish position to have. And if you, if you look at it, William F. Buckley was super libertarian on certain issues. Really libertarian. I mean, he was, he was for the legalization of marijuana. I mean, William F. Buckley, the, the founder of National Review, is for legalization of marijuana. And that's, that's a position a lot of people, you know, are surprised to hear. And, um, yeah, do I get a lot of backlash? I get disagreement. But I also, I'm very, and I qualify it in a very certain sense that I hold these positions. But there has to be, in the way that you create public policy, if every single individual says, I'm going to have my worldview get put into law, you have what yeah. you have leftist chaos. You have California, where you have all these little sub-tribes lobbying for the most lunatic minority oppression Olympics, as you call it, yeah. policy positions. And that's a really dangerous thing. And then you see how it ends up working, because my parents were visiting for the last week, mm -hmm. and my dad was amazed at the amount of tent cities we've got going up in all of these places. These progressive utopias that are supposed to be the friendliest to, the to poor people and everything else. Yeah, yeah and so anyway, that, that, so that's the one thing I think that conservatives are getting better at now. Yeah. I really do, and I think President Trump has done a great job of this. I have to say he's done a great job of this. He has been anti Dogma, and I love being. I love the idea of crushing pre-existing dogma, or at least challenging it. Because if some dogma is good and it should be upheld, mm -hmm. there's some things that should be. So, for example, one piece of dogma in our society is hard work is a good thing. Okay, that's good, great. Let's keep that. But then there's other pieces of dogma that let's just declare war in every country that looks at us funny. Really? That's what Republicans should believe. Mm -hmm. Like after the horrendous Iraq War and the endless Afghanistan War, we should still just be war happy and trigger happy at every corner? I, I don't think so. Isn't it strange now how the media is sort of painting conservatives as the anti-war party in a bizarre sense? So like tell, tell, Tulsi is like, you know, all against war and now they're making it sound like she's a conservative. It's, the, I thought this goes back to what Dennis yeah. Prager talks about. The left has no principles and the so media just, is the left. This is whatever side helps them get power. And I, there's this, what the mayor of Baltimore, she goes on television the day that the President Trump correctly decided not to execute a missile strike that would have killed 120 Iranians. She says, well, this is a huge sign of weakness against President Trump. And I saw this. I said, only President Trump <laughs> could, could get a get Democrat, a Democrat yeah. to accuse him of not declaring a war on a sovereign country. Is, is that his gift more than anything else? If you were to, you, you know him, obviously, <laughs> but if you were to whittle away everything else, is that the gift that somehow he has that pinpoint precision ability to find out what their weakness is and get them to use it against themselves Boy. constantly.
Ever wonder where your family comes from or what your ancestors did for a living? You can discover more about them and learn about your story by combining the Ancestry DNA test with billions of historical family records. I did it myself and I learned that my great-great-grandfather, Jacob Littman, was a shoe salesman who came to New York from Eastern Europe back in 1891. Ancestry DNA even found an old newspaper clipping from 1930 about a fire at the family home. Ancestry DNA gives you so much more than just the places you're from. Ancestry connects you to the places in the world where your story started using precise geographic detail and clear-cut historical insights. You can even trace your ancestors' journey over time following how and why your family moved from place to place. Only Ancestry can tell such a rich story and give you a more complex picture of the people from your past. For a limited time now through August 26, go to Ancestry.com slash Ruben for an exclusive Ancestry DNA kit for just $59. That's Ancestry.com slash Ruben for only $59. Ancestry.com slash Ruben. And now back to the show. It's one of his greatest gifts. I think he has a lot of them. I just... He's able to expose the hypocrisy within them so brilliantly, and even deeper than that, I, I think it's a, I think it's a very interesting thing. He's able to pull out the radicalism within the left, and whether I think that's a good thing and a bad thing. I think it's a good thing because you can see who they really are. I think it's a bad thing because then more people then become radical. You know, and that sort of is where we're at right now, right? Like oh he kind, he's yes. kind of exposing the hell out of them, and and actually, you know, it's funny. Every time he exposes them for something, I'm like, oh, that thing that I was talking about as a lefty, like when I still considered myself a lefty, I'm like, oh yeah, 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 that's the thing I was talking about three years ago. Now it's just burst forth yes. for everyone to see. But it is a catch twenty two, right? Because on one hand, you're exposing it, that's good, sunlight. On the other hand, then it suddenly well, then keeps because, us in this well, constant so state the of flux. Is, so then, President. Trump exposes the radicalism, which is good, so we can see who these people really are. We can see who Ilan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Ayanna Presley, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, we can see who they really are and the ideas they hold, which is good. That's always a good thing. But then what happens is the media hates Trump so much, they modernize these ideas. Mm -hmm. They all of a sudden make it, oh, it's not that bad that Ilan Omar says that some people did something about 9-11. It's not that bad that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez calls herself a socialist. And then they, they almost make it palatable. And or digestible, and mm -hmm. you have more people then embrace these radical positions, and that's that. I guess that's that's where we are. Um, I, I'm a little troubled by that, and I do want to make a really interesting point that I want everyone listening to this and watching this to think about, which is what makes this particular struggle versus leftist Marxism and kind of Western society values so unique. It's n I don't so my and my knowledge has never happened before. Almost every one of these revolutions that we can point to over the last hundred years, the Russian Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, every time that Marxists have taken over a government, and you see it through the universities, that's similar. But they are always pro-nation state. Like the Russian Revolution, they were mm -hmm. pro-Russia. Mm -hmm. They were. They, 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 that's interesting. You see yeah. what I'm saying? They, they, were, yeah. they were for the country. And so they were able to win over the countrymen because they're like, well, we love the country more, and what we want. This is so different. They're actually trying to assume power by being against the country. Yeah, this the founding principles were evil, the that's, founders were evil, really, let's take down all the statues. Also, it's anti-Alinskyite. Alinsky hmm. talked about embracing, and he was essentially telling people how to lie to get to power, that's essentially the doctrine of Saul Alinsky. But Alinsky talked about using the main symbols and the main um, sayings of a country to get to power and never diminish them. Betsy Ross, oh my gosh, yeah. forget about that. So Saul Alinsky would have said, Colin Kaepernick, you're a fool. You should have embraced the Betsy Ross flag and said she was a feminist and she would be upset with where America is today. That's what Saul Linsky would have said. Right. We've never worked with this sort of insurgency. Do you think it's possible? I mean, the, the place that I've sort of gotten to them is, okay, so let's just say we disagree with yeah. them, most everything they say, right? I don't, you know, I try not to impugn people's motives. I tend to think at this point that their motives are bad and that they really know that you know, they're, they're being owned every every other day. You know, there's always some clip of them just saying something awful and not knowing what they're saying, or sure. they can't respond to a basic question, are you for left-wing terrorism? You know, like they can't say, no, I'm not for terrorism, et cetera, et cetera. 
How much of it do you think is just that they genuinely, and I hate to say this, because this is not how I operate again, about people that I disagree with politically, but that they genuinely just want to create chaos, that, that they're the chaos makers, and then they'll have, say, the Warrens or the Bernies clean it up at a nicer level or something like that. But they're just on the ground, just creating as much chaos as possible. Depends who you're talking about. So if you talk about kind I'm of talking the, about those, the those gang of four, four. Yeah, you know, the Tlaib, squad. Tlaib, Presley, Cortez, and uh, I'm, thinking, I'm forgetting one. Omar. Omar, yeah. Um, so you have to first ask the question is, do they want what's best for America? And that's a really hard question to answer. And I, it depends like what you mean by right. what's best. Right. But I, do you think, here's another great, here's a question. Do you think they're thankful to be in America? Like, do you think they're overflowing with gratitude? I don't get that impression. I get bitterness. It seems as if they're bitter. That when they're walking the halls, that they're committed. I mean, you see it in Yeah, them, you see it. Right? That they're, they're on a mission. That there's anger driving them. That there's something, they believe that this system that we're living in, this beautiful country with so much opportunity, so much blessing, so much overflowing abundance for all people, that they see something that I don't see and that you don't see. Mm -hmm. And of course we see problems, right? We see our inner cities ruined, we see all these sorts of things. But we also understand that on the moving average, this country's been unbelievable and continues to be, and the re-embracing of those ideas will make it more so. I don't feel as if that they're thankful to be in this country. And so there are always people, though, in every major civilization like this that kind of, to use the joker term, just kind of want to see the world burn. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's them or not, but it sure, they sure sound like that at times. And I, I find it that they use every single instance of political exploitation and opportunity to try to advance their own political agenda to get further into power. And... Um, it's a very dangerous position because any sort of cross-examination of these people, they immediately accuse you of the most vile things you yeah, can possibly do. Yeah, you're racist. Do. I mean, it's always, it's always you're a racist, you're a bigot. Which is too bad because... I could not care less about their gender or their color. Ever, right. ever. And, and so, look, when I criticize them, I'm not criticizing them because of their race. I'm criticizing them because of what they say in their worldview. And they just happen to be that race. Yeah. You know, it's like, this is an afterthought. I mean, it would be the same thing if Adam Schiff was saying that. I mean, I've had plenty right, of fun right, at Adam right, Schiff's right. expense, by the way. Right, right. I've had plenty of fun at Chuck Schumer's expense and Nancy Pelosi's expense. But the one time you accuse these other people, you know, um, Rashida Tlaib and Presley and Cortez, you accuse that squad, if you will, mm -hmm. all of a sudden you're called these horrible names. And you know what's too bad about it is that there is real racism in the world. There is. But the more that that term is thrown around flippantly and just so kind of haphazardly, it cheapens real racism. So I know you don't want to help the Democrats, but if you were, say, a saner Democrat than them, if you were just a little more of a moderate, I, and it's so funny because now Pelosi, who really is pretty far left in she's and of herself, yeah, but now she's being framed as the, as the centrist Democrat, even though she's certainly not the type of liberal, because her answer is always government, uh, that, that I would care about. But it, let's say there were a couple, are, are there any Democrats that you think are sort of more blue dog, old There's school? that guy that was on the stage from Maryland, uh, Delaney. Yeah. yeah. He was, he, he talked about. He was just on the wrong stage. I mean. I mean, he was talking about this country has been great to a lot of people, we need to get back to national service. He was saying some things I actually agreed with. So, okay, so then if you were talking one to him, guy. right, so the one guy. And maybe Hickenlooper, but then he said some nutty stuff, so one guy. Okay, but if you were talking directly to him, and you wanted to help this guy regain the party, what, what would you tell In him? In some ways I do. We would just, it would, it would for just, even for a guy that wants Trump to obviously win again. Of course you, I do, you, but in some ways I want a functioning second party. Like in some ways I want a party that will step up and say, you know what? We do want regulatory reform. You know what? We do want to fund our military. Like, you know, that would be nice. Yeah. Like, or or think, we don't want open borders. How about that? How about that? And I think Delaney could come to an agreement with that. What would my advice be to him? I mean, you have to fight the radicals within your own party before you even focus on, you know, President Trump. Because you've got something very, very dangerous within your own party. And again, who am I to give advice to the left? I mean, I want President Trump to win in a massive landslide. And um, I believe he's on his way to win. Um for many different reasons, this being one of the contributing factors, the fact of how radical the left has become, but it's not exclusive to that. But I don't think that's gonna happen, Dave. I'm gonna tell you why. Uh, well, I've seen no evidence of it. You'd think that having Trump win an election might have caused but, a little self-reflection. So here's the question. When you and I go to college campuses at Turning Point USA, with Turning Point USA, are the students more like the, the squad or more like Delaney? 
the students that come to us to, well, to like that, the, that the like radical, us or the, the radical protester types. Oh no, they're of course they're much more like the squad. Of course, that's the leading indicator. Yeah, that's the harbinger. Whatever happens on college campuses will soon happen in the halls of Congress. The leading indicator of a culture is what happens on college campuses. Elon Omar, AOC, they got educated on these college campuses or lack thereof or indoctrinated. They got radicalized. Yeah. And then they get set forth and they're committed. They have their marching orders. If you look at a prototype of what the campus creates, the university, if there was a formula of what they're trying to put into the world, it is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Everything about her. Constantly wrong, but never in doubt. <laughs> Consistently challenging our history. Totally questioning um, any sort of power structure at B. No belief in national sovereignty at all. And chaos, chaos, chaos. That's the university. That's what they're creating. All right, so you don't want to help them that much. No, I, don't, well, I mean, I would like to see people like Delaney, you know, take, take root, but... Here's the other point. So here's the other thing that no one talks about, which I think is an interesting point, which is in politics, you're always kind of looking at who's my base, how am I catering to that base? And so when Donald Trump ran for the presidency and he went down the golden escalator, he did something that actually made the radicals, made Democrats become more radical. You say, how is that possible? He stole their base away from them. So he stole 10 million Democrats that are Catholics, that are union workers, that are electricians, that are middle class people that have voted Democrat since 1970. And now they're registered Trump people and they go to the rallies. I mean, you look at the data that I've actually, the Trump rallies, this amazing percentage of registered Democrats. Yeah, it's bananas. And they end up voting for Trump, they think nothing of it. Well, they're basically getting the disaffected Bernie people. That's right. That saw how corrupt the Democratic the Party is. Yeah. Blow it all up. So then what happens if the Democrats all of a sudden have 10 million less? Democrats. Mind you, Republicans bled a little. They bled some suburban voters. Mm -hmm. They bled some, you know, upper middle class voters just because they didn't like Trump's style. But the offset was generally positive in the states that really mattered, which were the traditional Democrats. Democrats look at their kind of roster like, oh my gosh, we're down 10 million voters. And then some lunatic proposes in a room, well, instead of trying to win those people back, why don't we go win more people in Malibu and Manhattan? Oh, what a great idea that is. Yeah, yeah. And then they start embracing these horrendously radical ideas as if they can get more people. Maybe they can. I mean, I, I've been proven wrong before, but somehow they can win another 10 million people around the Green New Deal, universal health care for illegals, complete and total open borders, shutting down people you disagree with, prosecuting people that dare say something critical of a member of Congress, which Rep. Rep. Frederica, Frederica Wilson said. Yeah, that, oh, yeah, that was a real... Or, or you, know, you know, Dave, I've done a lot of travel. I have to say, a kitchen table issue in Pennsylvania is making sure that the Boston bomber can vote. <laughs> they're all about it, right? You know, it's, like they're one issue voters on that. Yeah. It's amazing how many yeah. people in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, come up to me. They say, Charlie, whatever candidate makes sure that terrorists can vote, they got my vote. It's amazing. Of course, I'm being facetious. The more they, I like, what, what audience are they catering but to? Do, but does that tell you really how insidious this way of thinking is? So, like during the first debate when they all spoke Spanish, and to me it was the it was worst, so cringy. the worst sort of pandering. It would have been like if this was 1940s and we had an influx of Irish Americans and they were up. Oh, we're going to give you all a potato, and Michelle is going to, you know, it's like, what are you guys doing? But it's it's the worst sort of pandering, and yet they keep going to it. So it's almost as if the ideology actually overrides what you're saying. Which just be sort of sound political, uh, you know, maneuvering to win an election. They do whatever they need to do to, to assume power. That's the left. And so if you come from the, the, the acceptance that they're trying to deconstruct this country, then it all starts to make sense. That, why would you want to have open borders? You want to destroy the sovereignty. Why would you want to give away stuff you can't We're afford? so horrible and we should let everyone in. Yeah, exactly. In the well, by the way, every, they, this is what I can't understand. A couple things, because you, you got me on this. The Democrats say we're this horrible country. Albert, say one of them. The worst. Why the hell would you want to be president of that country? <laughs> it's, like what you, it's like, I hate this country. Yeah. I want to be president of it. That's a really interesting... That's what, just how good they are. Well, that's right. No, but they want to save us from ourselves, right? Because yeah. you're the philosopher king that yeah. will save us. The second thing is this, is if we were really this racist, bigoted, homophobic, horrendous country, why are millions of people trying to come here? And just from a more broad standpoint, we take in half the world's immigrants every single year. We take in a million legal immigrants every single year. We're the most accepting, generous, benevolent country ever to exist in the history of the world. I think we're overly generous at times, actually. I think our generosity actually is 
come back to bite us at times. I think that Trump has brought rational self-interest back to the conversation of the nation state. So just real quick on the immigration stuff, and then I, I really do want to get to some we stuff that we disagree on, on. But on the, on the immigration stuff, look, I get it. There are videos of Obama, of Pelosi, of Chuck Schumer, of Bill yeah. Clinton, all saying virtually the exact same things that Trump now says, and Trump is considered racist. Now, I get it. Trump also has a strange intonation and inflection when he speaks, and he can be a little sloppy around some of the language, or maybe intentionally inflammatory like or yeah, yeah and, th- and that's fine I'm, it, it doesn't even matter which way you look at it the point is that it, what he's actually mm-hmm. saying is not different really than what Obama is saying I even just this morning I tweeted out a clip about yep. of Obama saying virtually the same things that Trump says now do you think there's anything that could do it, that Trump could do if you think his policies around immigration are, are moral and just and the They're rest reasonable. of it is there anything you could do just around the language that might ease up some of this tension? Yeah, I mean, the one suggestion that I've made publicly, and I'll make it again, is we have to own the legal immigrant. I, I, I loved when Trump talked about the big door. I want to hear more about the door. Like, I want him to say wall and door. That'd be just my one piece of recommendation. Mm-hmm. Because I, I was watching this ridiculous clip on Twitter the other day, and they, the left, the left they, they shadow box and make it seem as if if you're accusing border jumpers and line cutters, I don't call them immigrants. They're border jumpers and line cutters. Because you know what an immigrant is? Someone who waits their turn that comes to this country correctly. Which is why we're seeing tons of studies now where legal immigrants, first generation legal immigrants, are the most anti-illegal yes, immigrants. Because they had to wait yeah. for the process, they had yeah. to get a green, all these amazingly hard, difficult things. We have to make that easier. But the second thing is the left, they make it seem as if, if you're against line cutters and border jumpers, you're somehow against legal immigrants. Mm-hmm. And I take the position, and some people on the right disagree with this position, I think we should have more legal immigrants. I think we should be the Kentucky basketball of immigrants. I want the smartest, richest, most aspirational, creative people in the world to come here that are under the age of 35. This should be the laboratory of excellence for the world. I want the best Koreans, Indonesians, Somalians, Germans. I don't care where you're from. I, if you have aspiration, come to America. That should be the advertisement. And boy, this Donald Trump is great at marketing. He could sell that in a second, couldn't mm-hmm. he? He could mm-hmm. do a world tour just on the legal immigration tour. And I think that would be, the media would find a way. Here's the link, sign up. I think the media, all of a sudden the left would be totally against for, you know, okay, they, they'd be building the wall for him, I'm kidding. Yeah. But, you know, but the, other, the, the last thing is this, is look, if the illegals were voting Republican and they were tend to vote Republican, the Democrats would already have the wall built and say anyone who opposes the wall is against the black community. Right, they would right. find some way to spin it, yeah. which actually is it is correct that open borders hurt the black community, believe it or not. But that's another yeah, longer, that's a, another whole other thing. Yeah. All right, so I want to back up to one other thing, and sure. then and then let's get to the tech stuff, which is super important. Um, on how sort of conservatives or people on the right have to sort of widen the the net right now. How do you think the messaging could be about making room for secular conservatives or secular Republicans? So someone like um, Heather McDonald, who I've had on the show, who she's, is, she's a religious. I, I think, I think she's an atheist. Yeah, she said, I, I find p- petitionary prayer futile. And I love Heather. I heard that. It's, come on. Like, yeah. is it, we disagree. There we go. Okay, Heather, but you want no. to live in the same society as her, and you probably yes, agree with her. I'm, you I'm probably, not a religious fundamentalist. So, like. but so, but I think, and I when I was on Candace's show on yeah. PragerU, I, I brought this up that if that there's such lunacy on the left that to me all the right has to do, all conservatives have to do is just be at every turn be a tiny bit better. Like, you don't have to be, you know what I mean? Like, not a lot, sure. but just a little bit better. What do you think conservatives or Republicans or whatever can do for the disaffected lefty that still is, is secular, maybe has some religious belief, but it's not a, sort of a core tenant or mm-hmm. whatever it is? What do you think that people on the right well, can do? Well, I, I have to give the conservatives credit. Everyone knows about the risk of driving drunk. You could get in a crash. People could get hurt or killed. But let's take a moment to look at some surprising statistics. Almost 29 people in the United States die every day in alcohol-impaired vehicle crashes. That's one person every 50 minutes. Even though drunk driving fatalities have fallen by a third in the last three decades, drunk driving crashes still claim more than 10,000 lives each year. Many people are unaware that driving while high can be just as dangerous. In 2015, 42% of drivers killed in crashes tested positive for drugs. Not so harmless after all, is it? And get this, from 2007 to 2015, marijuana use among drivers killed in crashes doubled. The truth is driving while high is deadly, so stop kidding yourself. If you're impaired from alcohol or drugs, don't get behind the wheel. If you feel different, you drive different. Drive high, get a DUI. Drive sober or get pulled over. 
paid for by NHTSA. And now back to the show. I think Donald Trump's done a lot of that. I mean, Donald Trump um, has been amazingly embracing of the evangelical community, but he himself, and I don't want to speak for him, was definitely more secular, right? I mean, he was not running a campaign like Mike Huckabee or Rick Santorum was in 2016. I think you would agree with that. Yeah, for sure. It's much more based on ideas and the revitalization of the nation state. And and And, those guys actually have very little influence now over modern Republican politics. Yeah, yeah, and and look, I agree, again, I want to just make sure I reinforce this. I agree with them on basically a lot of things they're saying personally. And now my pro-life position is, is... I could defend that from a secular lens. If you got another four hours, we can have a whole thing. <laughs> we might dive into it. Or you could talk yeah. to Lila Rose about that. Yeah. Lila's really great. We've done that one. I know. It's an amazing podcast. Yeah. I listened to it a couple times. She was really, really good on it. But the, um, the thing that I find really interesting about this is that the Republicans are becoming the tolerant ones. We really are. And it's, it's the Republican conservative ones that have the most intellectual diversity, that have the most, I, I believe that's going to have the most rel- religious diversity. We're, we're trending towards that. And I like to think that Turning Point USA has really been on the cutting edge of this. I think we've been on the cutting edge of it. From yeah, listen, I go to Turning Point, you, there are kids in yarmulkes, there are black kids, there are Muslim, Muslim kids, kids, there are yeah. trans people. I we, mean, have a, we have a spokesman, Rob Smith, who's a veteran of our country, happens to be gay, black, super articulate. You know, we, Candace Owens was with us for a while um, and did an amazing job. I mean, I would like to think that we're practicing what we're preaching. I would like to think that. And also, um, have, doing events with you is so fun because it's one thing to say you're the tolerant one and then you're the only one, in, you know, <laughs> but it's fun because right. then you and I will disagree on a couple things, but the marketplace of ideas and the collision of ideas, it also keeps you, it all, like any muscle, if it atrophies, if you don't use it, it atrophies. The same thing goes with your policy positions and your politics. And I really believe part of the reason why the left has become so radical is they haven't had to debate. Yeah, they got they got fat because it was so easy to call everyone racist and sit Correct. back. Correct. Yeah, so so they, I, yeah. AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, has she ever gone on a center-right platform? That's a really good question, is it? Is I, I, I know of no knowledge of it. Yeah. Ever since that one woman asked her three tough questions about, and she said Palestine was occupying Israel or something, yeah. she has done nothing but friendly media. Yeah. Where I, I would love to sit down with her, and even though I've gone after her on no, Twitter, I mean, obviously I would treat her, I, of course, with I the same too, respect. I know you would, and I yeah. would too, and I would ask her direct questions, and I would hope she would ask questions out of me. And so I, the one thing I think is really important that I get far too often, the question I get a lot on college campuses, and then we can get into the tech stuff, is that students that are in the middle, they're, they're, they come after this, this is the best case scenario at times, but it's not correct, where they say, well, yeah, the left has gone out of control, but the right has also gone really out of control. And I say to myself, what do you mean? There is no moral equivalency between the two. Where is right-wing Antifa? Where is Well, right- they'll tell you it's the KKK. Uh, they, there's 45 of them, and every time they try to materialize anywhere, it's unilateral, uniform, and overwhelming denouncement of these people. Right. right. Just out of control denouncement. Yeah, I think we should just hit that though, because if, if what point, happened, right? if what happened a couple weeks with ago Andy. with with ICE, yeah, with oh, the attack. I'm sorry. Okay. Well we have, or with Andy even, right, with Andy No, who I had on. I mean if either one of those things had come out of the right, whatever that is, whether you... There would be a CNN Sunday night special. Yeah, we'd, they'd be having a town hall where Marco Rubio would be getting strung up. I mean... That's right. Yeah. And so they virtue signal a lot better than us. But what I'm trying to say is, I'm not trying to say we're like better people and we deserve all this, but boy, our worldview is better than them right now, 100%. Because if you're a member of Congress and you're asked a specific question, will you denounce Antifa, which for all intents and purposes in my mind is a domestic terror organization. They're a domestic terror organization. They should be treated as such. How do you assault a journalist like that with masks, with concrete milkshakes, send him to a hospital, and not be called a domestic terror? You have, or, you have an organization, you have a hierarchy, you have a common meeting place. I mean, all this stuff that... Because the they're, F- they're doing that dirty work. Right, That's but what everything the FBI... There's like a checklist that the FBI has mm-hmm. of what a terror group is. They, they qualify all of them, domestic terror group. I mean, they have specific targets, right? They, they, all this sort of thing. And yet, total silence amongst the left. Complete and total silence. And I'm rooting, I'm rooting for people like Delaney and Andrew Yang, because Andrew Yang denounced it. Yeah. Andrew Yang had the best tweet, and this, the, then we'll get to the tech yeah. stuff. The best tweet. He said, 
And I think it was just kind of this very interesting observation. He has an IQ that's amazing. He's yeah. a really smart guy. He's misguided in the UBI thing, but that's okay. And he <laughs> said, um, I notice conservatives follow a lot more liberals on Twitter than liberals follow conservatives on Twitter. Did you see this? Yeah, movie? I saw it. And I said, he, he's getting there. Give him, give him five more months of the circus. He's going to be very, he's going to have a different view of the left than he did a year and a half. I actually, I, I completely agree. And then we're going to get to the disagreement stuff, but I'm with you on that because he keeps, you know, I had him in here yeah. and I think he's a and really... Way, your interview with him was fantastic. Thank was you. Really good. Not necessary to say. But it's thank honest. Um, he, I think, I think you're basically right because even when I asked him what his progressive politics were, everything he said was about equality, you know, I'm for gay marriage or okay. something like that. And it's like, but that's not progressive anymore because we've progressed to it. We've progressed to equality. So in my view, he really is an old school liberal. And yes, on some of the big government stuff and whatever you think about UBI, he's not there. But I think once he's done with this evil machine, he's gonna, in a weird way, he could end up being more right than, I think so. than most liberals. I, I think, think so. that probably is, is where he'll end up. Well, but wait, let's. Okay, fine. All right, I wanna move to the disagreements. We've been too nice to each other oh, here. Geez, here we are. You wrote a piece in the Washington Post about big tech a couple weeks ago. And everyone that's watching this knows that where I'm at right now is the libertarian side of me that thinks that the market can can solve everything, or at least that the market is the best way yes. to solve problems. Not that they're always gonna be solved, but that's the best way. That's being pushed to its limit. The rubber is meeting the road. I think the tech companies have gotten so out of control um, with the bannings, with the shadow bannings, with the uh, demonetizations, with algorithms that nobody seems to know how to control mm -hmm. or are being manipulated, and I could go on and on with a zillion other things. Your argument basically was, yeah, I don't want the government doing anything, but here we are. That's the big that's, but. That's the but. And now the but, of course, is where, that's where the problem starts mm -hmm. kicking in if, if you hold an ideal that markets are supposed to solve these things. So I'm, I'm not there. It's I'm just really, not it's there. Really, it's a really tough conversation, Dave. I'm so glad we're having it because I'm a Milton Friedman guy. I'm a free market Free people. Wait, New York Times had him on the cover. He's a, he's in an alt right. Yeah, uh, right. Hero. No, you're right. Well, that was the most ridiculous piece. <laughs> yeah, that I've seen. My dad, life. forty years, he's I mean, had the New York Times. I think even longer than I've been born. He had it for like forty five years. Still subscribed. Nothing like seeing his son's head. This was, was one of the most dishonest pieces of journalism I've ever seen. You have one guy, like one guy. Yeah. And it's it's just this pablum thousands of words of nonsense nonsense anyway that that's a different thing at a different time i've invited the author on the show milton friedman yeah i'm a milton friedman guy i'm a thomas soul guy i believe markets do solve solutions for those of you that are listening or watching that aren't sure what my view of markets are it's that free people exchanging goods in a free society voluntarily mutually cooperating as they see fit will benefit society benefit the individual and that that's essentially a market so a couple things. Uh, in order for a market to operate, you also believe in private property. That's a big thing. So you have impartial courts that can adjudicate differences. So you're not an anarchist. I'm not an anarchist. Yeah. Uh, Adam Smith talked about the importance of impartial courts because you're going to have differences of properties and not just physical property, but intellectual property and all that. And also, of course, the price system. That's really, really important. Milton Friedman talked how prices are the language, how we communicate with each other. So if, if tomorrow Starbucks made every single cup of coffee $25, which is not inconceivable, considering they're up <laughs> You mean they're going to lower the prices? Yeah, exactly. That, the upward trajectory that they're on for coffee, there's, there's something to be said that less people will buy that coffee. And so that's how you communicate. No one actually might open, some people might open their voice and be upset, but the, the silent regression from buying their coffee will be reflected in their balance sheet. And that's how we communicate value to value. Prices are super important. So I think the first thing when we talk about tech is we also have, we have to first admit we really don't have a market in tech. There's a couple reasons behind this. And then we have to talk about some of the problems that I think everyone admits. First of all, there's a lot of cronyism that exists between the big tech companies right now, whether it be government contracts, whether it be far too extended patents that are given to Google. We need to think about this. I think that patents in a lot of ways are anti-free market. And I think we should shrink the window of how long some of these patents are. So you said it the best. Mm -hmm. Google has this algorithm that no one can figure out, right? But they also have it patented. And they have it patented for a very long time. And so if it were to be put off the patent market, well, it's also made public. Mm -hmm. And if someone could compete against it. So that's an interesting thing to think about, that there could be a free, that there, 
actually hiding behind some of the government favors that are given to them. Right, so it's a weird place to be, though, because you're sort of asking for government interference well, to, I'll get to that. with the, with the hope of this back-end freedom well, So like, let's, ask, let, let's go to what we want. Yeah. I think let's, let, I always tell our team at Turning Point USA, every, every time, what does success look like? Well, Charlie, success looks like 1,400 high school kids in D.C. in August. Great. How do we get there? We work backwards to where we are today. Let's, let's do that. Why not? Take me on this voyage. What does success look like? Fair, free, and open platforms where different ideas can express themselves. Multiple tech companies, not four, but dozens of tech companies competing for our interests that are able to you know, have um, these ideas present. Hopefully an improving product over time. And hopefully a search engine that doesn't have 92% of the market share. I don't think that's a healthy thing. I just don't. I think even 40% would be a lot. 92%. So that, that's where success would look like a disaggregation. Let's call it that. Okay. Or a decentralization. I think that's probably a fair... Mm -hmm. so you'd agree with that, right? Mm -hmm. that would, and also you not having to battle YouTube nonstop and you not having to do all these things. You could actually focus on content creation. I have to ask you, Dave, how many hundreds of hours have you spent of wasted energy on this stuff. Oh, it's been that. I mean, I have to fight them publicly constantly. Right. It's and like, it's it not fun. you, right? Yeah, well, it's not fun. It's, it, it's not that it's, it's a no, well, it's bad business because I'm sure. putting cow content that I end up losing money on. I'm in a weird way. There are times where I'm doing the producers. The more things that I make, the more money I lose. Yes. Which is not fun. But also, it's just publicly, it's not fun to have to attack no. the, your no. own, your own so, platform. But okay, so, so, so far I'm with you on the ideas, but now where we're right, going to have so, our problem so, so is here's the, the, here's the, question, the functional is part. Is the, the question is, so let's say we deregulate some of the patent stuff and all but is it enough? And I'm at a place right now where Tucker Carlson said something really interesting to me and really stuck with me. He said, Charlie, I want you to think about this. Who is more powerful, the IRS or Google? And I immediately said the IRS, because that's what we conservatives believe. Like, we believe that government has uniform power. And I, I defended it, I thought, pretty well. Google doesn't have the power of audits. Google can't put you in prison. You know, all these IRS can do all those sorts of things, right? And the IRS can wreck your business. And Tucker retorted with a really interesting thing. He said, well, but Google can't shut down your business. I said, yeah, I guess that's right. And I debated a little bit. And Google can manipulate entire society to believe something that might not be true. And we went through the whole litany of how powerful Google was. And I thought about it for months. And I think that's a really important thing that we conservatives do. We actually are always challenging our positions. I think that's what's so healthy about our movement. And it hit me about a month and a half ago when I was using, I had my laptop open and I had my Gmail account watching YouTube, you know, on my yeah. Google calendar. Yeah. And I said, my goodness, they know everything about me. The IRS doesn't know crap. The IRS knows a couple bank statements, you know, my taxes and my bank statements. That's a very small picture of my actual activity. And I thought to myself when I had my, this computer open, I said, what if one engineer in Google was flipping through Twitter and mm -hmm. saw one of my tweets praising President Trump? And he said, screw this Charlie Kirk guy. I'm going, and he goes to work tomorrow and he decides to look at everything about me. Mm -hmm. Do we know that's not happening? I mean, I think we can go on the assumption that it is happening. That's actually. really scary. That's more power than the NSA has. And... By the way, we know that Google is so slanted in the wrong direction ideologically. We know they've shown regret for not doing enough in 2016. We know the political imbalance, their political contributions were over a million dollars to Hillary Clinton and zero dollars to Donald Trump in 2016 as far as political contributions. They fired James DeMaury. So here's the question. Is, is there a place for the federal government to get engaged or involved, tinker on the edges or, chain, or do something to change the way that this is currently happening? And the piece I wrote in the Washington Post was first admitting how this could go wrong. So let's just, can mm -hmm. I start there? Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so well, that's why, that's why I brought up the piece, because I think you yeah. did try to at least acknowledge yeah. th this I'm is struggling the, the with freaking this. murky road that this thing is. I'm struggling yeah. with this because I'm, the free market's so great. I believe this. I see this beautiful society created by the free market. And I say, but what about this? These companies, so I'm struggling. And yeah. That's a good thing to struggle, because then you actually might find reasonability somewhere. And so... The first piece is, let's see how this could go wrong, okay? More times than not, when you apply regulation on a very, very big company, the regulation get, ends up getting written by those companies, the regulation gets lobbied for the, by those companies, there's last minute, middle of the night changes being put by senators and K Street law firms and lobbying, lobbyists that end up actually benefiting the very company that it's supposed to regulate. Right, it, it ends up hurting the competition that's trying to upstart because they can never precisely. keep up with the regulations. Okay, so now you're so far you're giving me stuff that I'm, right. I'm with I, you. I talked about this why in the piece, I wouldn't want right? this, yeah. so I opened up with this, yeah. right? 
And so let's, let's talk about a very agreeable example is Dodd-Frank. Dodd-Frank, for those of you that don't know that are watching this, it was a banking regulation bill passed out of, out of the 2008 financial crisis authored by Chris Dodd and Barney Frank to try to regulate the big banks to try to never allow the 2008 financial crisis to happen again. But essentially what it would be is he's like, okay, I lost my arm in a horrible motorbil- motorbil- motorcycle accident and I'm taking Pepto-Bismol for a stomach <laughs> ache. It's like the complete wrong yeah. treatment. It's, it had nothing to do with this. So they apply the wrong treatment to an ill-advised, uh, poorly analyzed problem. And what ended up happening was the big five or six banks, Goldman, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase, you know, these, these massive, massive banks that have trillions and trillions, hundreds of tens of billions, tens of trillions of dollars of assets collectively, they lobby for regulation that they understand, that they can comply with. Now they're even too bigger to fail. And what has happened? You now have Wells Fargo, you have BOA, you have JP Morgan, with stock prices that have never been higher, with more power than they've ever had, and what did Dodd-Frank do? We have seen a massive decrease and decline in community banking. Massive. Because for the bank, the local bank of Sacramento, let's just take a local bank of Sacramento that might have $250 million in deposits. And they might do a couple million, you know, let's say $12 million in revenue. You know, they've got some good loans out, healthy balance sheets, all that. But all of a sudden, a federal regulator walks in with an encyclopedia of new regulation they have to comply with. And they say, well, this is going to cost us $800,000 in law costs. Well, sorry, this is the new law. Well, $800,000 for J.P. Morgan is called lunch. That's nothing. I mean, yeah. it's nothing. Then. So what ends up happening is it penalizes it. So I'm admitting I'm being vulnerable. Okay, so, yeah, so this is a huge concession on your well, part. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, I mean, it's a part of the piece, right? I'm being vulnerable of how I've come to this because I first want to just tell the audience that I'm not dealing in absolutes here at all. Mm-hmm. I'm dealing in very much of there's, there's, there's context and there's texture to this. So anyway, so how regulation could be a weapon used. And fa- you saw this with Facebook, though. You saw this with Facebook, where Facebook actually put forth this proposal of how to protect people's privacy. That was like four, 450,000 pages of garbage. <laughs> it was basically written by you know, Sheryl Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg right. of how their company can thrive and rule the world. Okay, that's stupid. So then the question is, how do we get to that success? And I think what I wrote in the piece is the number one thing that we can do is change section 602. I think that's the number. I get It's the 206 or 602. I can be dyslexic at times. Yeah. So, so I think it's 602 in the technology code that was passed in the 1990s that, that allows these technology platforms to hide behind the label of being a platform when they're really acting like a publisher. Mm-hmm. So the Rubin Report, right, the, any of these companies, um, you guys are publishers. Right? Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm yeah, I'm publisher. responsible okay. for the content. That right. So if you look at that I put camera out there. and yeah. say something horribly libelous about somebody and publish it behind your name, you could be held accountable for that libel suit. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, a platform, right? A platform is supposed to be an open forum where no one can be held accountable to it. However, where they get around it is where they have these community standards, right? Right. That's, which is the sneaky way of oh, we're going to kind of curb out who we don't right. exactly want in there. So trying to break outside the binary box, since the piece I've thought of this more and I've gotten some really good feedback on it, there can be a third box created too. It's like you can have a platform publisher and then social network. Because they're not either, they're definitely acting like a publisher, they're mm-hmm. pretending to be a platform, but why not create a third box and have an internet bill of rights? That's an interesting idea. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that's 100% what I believe, but why not? Because when you're consuming so much information online and so many people, are, their livelihoods are online and we're gravitating towards online, what's to say that there shouldn't be that kind of third box? And so um, there's a very aggressive community that says, regulate these companies, throw the regulators at them. It's very tempting to do that because you want to seek vengeance against these companies that are doing these horrible, horrible things. But my whole thing right here is that something needs to change governmentally. We're at that point. Mm-hmm. What that something is, I'm open-minded to. I proposed in the Washington Post piece that got a ton of play, got more mail from that piece, I think, than any other thing I've written, yeah. is you got it, the, six, the 602 code is the opening. Um, you, that's, where you, that's where I think we have to change it. So, okay, so I like the platform versus publisher debate, and I think you're right. They are acting now yep. as publishers, not open platforms. So I think there's something there. 
I think where, where I would still be struggling is, okay, so we even, I, I can get you with you on the Internet Bill of Rights. I would love that. If you're, if sure. you're a, uh, a, well, publisher, let's say, if you're a platform, as they're pretending to be, you it's have a little to hard, abide by then you, you have certain things to abide by. But now the, but, so that sounds good, right? Road to hell's paved with good intentions. Now we've got something that sounds good, but then to enforce it, what are you going to do? What is the government going to do? Suddenly you have a gajillion bureaucrats running around these companies, making sure that they're doing all of those things. And it's like, well, do the middle management government bureaucrats have any insight sim- into how these what, companies operate internally? I could tell you what you do. You, you create a division in the Department of Justice that's focused on internet civil rights. It's no different than free expression that was challenged in the 70s and 80s in a lot of different, in the gay community. Was, you know, there was a huge, there was huge controversy in the 1980s um, in California in particular. A lot of lawsuits that stemmed out of that. And there was a creation eventually in the Department of Justice that focused on, so how is it any different, Dave, when you get the kind of penalization that you've gotten <laughs> on social media or when Crowder gets demonetized, how is that not a violation of, of your freedom of expression? And someone will say, with our private company... Well, Okay. I don't want to force that beggar to bake the cake. Of course, I completely and totally understand that. But then you are a publisher. You're discriminating. Mm-hmm. If you want, if, the point of being a publisher is you don't have to take everyone's piece. Yeah. <laughs> right. 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 That, that's the whole. That's that's the whole idea of being a publisher. And so the the other the other interesting thing, Dave, the question to challenge you is when wh- at what point? What's the breaking point for you? Because right. because does, what if Google shut us all up? Shapiro, Crowder. Knowles, Clavin, Daily Wire, me, Prager, overnight. Would then we say we go after them with government? And here's the other question I have for you. No, but, well, first of all, let me just answer What's that. What's stopping I, them? Right. So I've been posing this actually when I, because this is what I've been talking about mostly at, at colleges lately, and I pose that question. If they were to digitally assassinate me today, if they just all of them just agreed, Twitter down, YouTube down, Facebook, Facebook down, and Instagram down, would that be a violation of my civil rights? And I think it's as close as you can possibly get to yes. They could, they could just take you out of what the new public sphere is. And, and especially the way that technology is evolving so fast, you could almost argue that your ability to be on those platforms mm-hmm. in some weird way is almost paramount than your ability to just exist yes. on a day-to-day basis, which is a sort of, you know, very Philip K. Dick to think of, uh, right. so, type of thing to think so about. So my question for you, Dave, is are we there yet? And if not, when will we be? And do you, th- then that, that I'm there. Okay, so let's, let's say I, I see it. So, and, so Tucker and I have done this several times on his show. So let's say I, I grant you that. Then explain this to me. Trump happens to be favorable to some of the people that you're mentioning here. He's, he's on the right side of this issue, I mm-hmm. would say. What happens now? Trump loses in 2020. You've got President Elizabeth Warren who wants to, it's code 230, my guys are telling me, by the way, not 602. See, we fact check here on the Rubin Report. That wasn't even dyslexia, that was just a made up. Yeah, it wasn't made up, it was (laughs) mismemory. Okay, sorry. I got all these you've, numbers. You've just head. lost all credibility. For Did, and I really right. thought you were doing well this hour. No, two, all right. Three. Now we've got President Elizabeth Warren, who would be more than happy as a far-left progressive to do everything that she can to have the government take over everything. And now you've already handed her this power. Now, I think I know what your answer is going to be. She's going to do it anyway. Whether Trump moves on it or not, the left will come for it anyway. But that still seems crazily dangerous to me and, will, and a terrible pressure. Well, it depends on how we structure this in a way Again, I think I think the challenge is whenever possible. We're going back to the doctrine of Adam Smith. So here's the question, Dave: Private property. You have private property rights, don't you? We yeah. all do. Yeah. So aren't all your videos you put on YouTube your property, and you've monetized them? And so under the Adam Smith doctrine of markets, you well, have. Well, technically, I don't know if I actually just honestly don't know off the top of my head with whatever crazy thing I've signed with YouTube. But are the, the videos that, that I put there? So that's an interesting question. Yeah, you definitely have the you, the intellectual property. The, the, is definitely right, yours. the IP, sure. All this production cost, yeah. all that that is yours. Yeah, and you've monetized it. And I think, from what I understand, you've gone into a cooperative with YouTube. I'm guessing that they have the rights to it once you you sign over the rights. But isn't there an argument to say like, but this is my video. I've created this. Whether that's been adjudicated or not, I'm not sure. But I think the solution has to go through the courts. And this is me believing the courts have been highly politicized in many, many recent years, the long-lasting legacy of Donald Trump will be hopefully the rebalancing the federal judiciary away from slanted radicalism and towards hopefully kind of very restrained um, 
kind of restrained, um, what's the word, textualism, being more textualist. And so that's the question. So if Elizabeth Warren starts to go on a rampage, you could, you, hopefully you can be able to sue and you can use the courts to uphold these things. And that's under, you know, under Obama, there were decisions that he, what, he was not crazy about. So your so. basic belief, if we were to whittle all this down, would be that the three branches of government would still be able to function in a way. Hopefully. My, my, that, my, would, that would protect us from the government over. Let overage. me go a step further. Yeah. There's four branches of government, and the fourth is called Silicon Valley. Yeah. And they're stronger than the rest of the three of them. That's, that, that's where I'm at, where we have a super government that's been created, where the kingdom of DC is no longer the most powerful fiefdom in this Game of Thrones, that the power is in Silicon Valley. And this is where Tucker is on this issue. This is where Dennis Prager is on this issue. I mean, the IRS, to give you an idea, the IRS, they don't even accept emails. You have to, you have to send a snail letter to them, like a snail mail letter to them. I, I, again, they might be morally corrupted, but these guys at Google, I mean, they're literally building new <laughs> limbs for people. Right. I mean, they have driverless cars, highly technological people. And so, and Dave, here's my question for you as a libertarian. Did you, do you support, looking retrospectively back in history, the trust busting that Teddy Roosevelt did in the 1900s? Right, so I get it. I mean, this is the slippery slope thing always, right? There's a libertarian argument that would be against the Civil Rights Act that I think is a I disagree with that. No, so yeah. I disagree with it too, and I'm not for relitigating it, but I think there is there is a libertarian argument there. But this is where I would say, I would say this is the difference between basically a classical liberal and a libertarian. I do find some utility for the state. So nothing that you're saying to me, you're, nothing you're saying is completely outlandish. Sure. And I think if anything, for whatever whatever disagreement there is here, in a weird way, we need to keep that disagreement. Do you think that's fair to no, say? I think because that's totally because fair. that I, I, way it keeps either side from it keeps, it's yeah. an account and not getting too yeah. far and not allowing your emotion run. To, and I think to keep it in check, I just so it's it's a very interesting conversation because the the growing in the kind of conservative libertarian world and reading Hayek and reading Rothbard, I've been told my entire life, and I agree with this up until the last couple months where I've told the true monopoly is government. And that's just not true anymore. We have companies that can do things the government cannot do. Yeah. And that's never been the case in human history. It's just never been the case. It just hasn't. And where you have a government that can shut off the entire lines of communication for millions of people. You have a government that can say, oh, we want everyone to think that Sam's Deli is closed tomorrow. So everyone Googles Sam's Dell, oh, it's closed, even though it's open. Yeah. That's you have an entire super government that's been created that can manipulate the entire behavioral pattern of a society. And so if that actually, if we could admit that's stronger than the government, then do we use government against it? And, some, and again, I admitted all of how that could go wrong. You could actually end up making those, those companies right, more up, powerful. Yeah. But I want to go back to where I, see, where I saw what a success looks like. And this, this has to be like the moonshot, we're going to get to the moon. And this is the advice I gave the President Trump uh, publicly, um, where I think the President should issue a big challenge, saying to the entrepreneurs of America, go start the next tech company. I'm going to use your platform. I'm going to use as many platforms as I can touch. Go do it right now. Go raise the capital. I believe in you. Almost like creating entrepreneurial activity around this. Well, Kirk, uh, as you know, we're taping this at the end of July right now. This is going to air in August because I'm yeah. off the grid for August. You might be interested in perhaps an announcement that someone might be making at the beginning of September. I don't Good. want to I, say too much. But that. But I, if you want to ping that Trump guy and tell him. Sure, but yes, I love all <laughs> that stuff. And I'm not, I'm not saying any of these yeah. things are exclusive. Yeah. I'm saying we've, we've, we've identified the problem. We understand the significance of it. We understand how we could solve it incorrectly because the first thing you do in medicine is what first do no harm. Yeah. It's the first thing. So we have this problem and we could end up actually making it worse and that would be horrible, wouldn't it? Imagine if we passed all this regulation. Imagine if we had this crazy bill passed through Congress, we felt great about it. Then 18 months later, all of a sudden we find out that Google got all these last minute provisions and it's not being enforced and they're ending up not 92% of search results, they have 99% of search results, and everyone gets taken off the market. And that would be really, that, that would be defeating. The road to hell, man. All right, listen, we, we have to wrap, unfortunately. Okay. Well, but obviously, obviously we're gonna do this again. And you know, look, if we ended up getting booted from the platforms, I guess we'll just have to keep doing this in person until- We could text this video to people or something, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> They'll take us down. Thank you, Charlie. Uh, for more on Charlie, follow him at charliekirk11. And don't forget to click that subscribe button and make sure the bell is solid to get all the notifications for our videos. Thanks for watching, everybody.